Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Um, my name is Eric Wakin. I'm the deputy director of the Hoover Institution and the director of its library and archives. And I'd like to welcome everyone back to one of our long awaited library and archives book talks, which we are co-hosting with Hoover's history working group, which is chaired by our moderator and senior fellow, Neil Ferguson, whom I'll introduce momentarily. <clears throat> Um, I know we'd hope to have this event live, a combination in person and hybrid, but we've had to settle for purely hybrid ones. So, so thanks for joining us. I know there's hundreds of people on, on the screen, so thank you. Before I hand things over to Neil, I'd just like to mention that this month actually marks the founding of the Hoover Institution Library and Archives in its original incarnation as the Hoover War Library, the Hoover War Collection. On April 22nd, 1919, Herbert Hoover sent his wife, Lou Henry, a telegram stating that he would provide $50,000, you know, today's purchasing power, roughly 850,000, to underwrite, quote, a mission to Europe to collect historical material on war, unquote. Um, that was his deed of gift. That was the amount he gave. Um, 15 to 20 years before the National Archives were founded. We continue as a library and archive to realize his vision in our second century by collecting, preserving, describing, and most importantly, making available the most important historical material on war, revolution, and peace in the world. And I'm glad that um, our speakers have made use of our archives and many other archives for, for their research. Um, I want to thank the uh, Board of Overseers of the Hoover Institution, that's our Board of Directors, who's, and other donors, without whose financial support, nothing we do would be possible. I know several members are on, on the Zoom. And also, I want to thank our Director, Condoleezza Rice, for her support, not just of the Library and Archives and our programming, but even more importantly, for her support of history as a subject, as a vocation, and as something done in a deep and systematic and substantial way that the people who are going to be presenting today, Brendan Sims, uh, Charlie Laterman, and, and Neil Ferguson, do in their lives. Really important. Now, let me introduce our moderator, Neil Ferguson. <clears throat> Neil is the Milbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, also a senior faculty uh, fellow at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard, where he served for 12 years as the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of History. He's the author of 16 books and many more coming, including The Pity of War, The House of Rothschild, Empire, Civilization, and Kissinger, The Idealist, which won the Council on Foreign Relations Arthur Ross Prize. Over to you, Neil, and thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Eric, uh, and thank you uh, for your leadership at Hoover and uh, especially for all the work you do at the Archive. I like to remind people that the proper name of the Hoover Institution is the Hoover Institution on War, Revolution and Peace, and we're very busy indeed uh, revitalizing the study of, of those things at Hoover on the basis of, of classical historical methods, reading the sources uh, in, in the archives. Uh, the Hoover uh, history operation uh, beyond the archive has really two uh, wings. There's a Hoover military history working group uh, led by my good friend, Victor Davis Hansen. And then there's uh, the kind of civilian version, the more recently founded Hoover history working group, which I lead. And uh, in a way, uh, I'm, I'm kind of guilty of, of being an imposter because this is as much military history as it is anything else, as we're talking about the pivotal moment of, of World War II. So forgive me if I'm not Victor, uh, but I'll do my best to, to stand, stand in, in for him and, and for military history generally. Well, for uh, today's book talk, we invited Brendan Sims and Charlie Lederman to talk about their uh, 
new book, Hitler's American Gamble, Pearl Harbor and Germany's March to Global War. And I'll kick the questions off in just a moment, but uh, we're eager to get your questions too. And the best way of of getting them is if you use the Q&A Zoom feature, which you'll find down at the bottom of your, your screen and, and post, your, uh, post your questions there. Uh, we will uh, not probably get to all of them, but we'll, we'll certainly do our best to get to some of them. Now it's my role to introduce our speakers. Uh, Brendan Sims is director of the Center for Geopolitics and Professor of the History of European International Relations at the University of Cambridge. He's the author of at least eight other books, including The Struggle for Mastery in Germany, Unfinest Hour, uh, Britain and the Destruction of Bosnia, Three Victories and a Defeat, The Rise and Fall of the First uh, British Empire, more which uh, there isn't uh, uh, time to, to list. Uh, his co-author, Charlie Lederman, is a research fellow here at Hoover, uh, but uh, most of the time he's a senior lecturer in international history at the War Studies Department at King's College London. Uh, his first book, Sharing the Burden, uh, was published not so very long ago. Uh, he and Brendan have former as co-authors. Uh, in 2017, they published Donald Trump, The Making of a Worldview, which tells you uh, that these are uh, historians after my own heart. They are not confined to one narrow area of specialism, but are happy to range uh, broadly and indeed to write about uh, contemporary uh, politics. Uh, before I pose my first question, I thought I would just quote myself rather egotistically. Well, quote my blurb about this book. Uh, all too often I wrote, historians narrate the past as if the end were preordained at the beginning, but history isn't a novel or a play, it's more like a big game in which the difference between victory and defeat depends on split-second decisions and hair's breadths. In Hitler's American Gamble, Brendan Sims and Charlie Lederman grippingly retell the story of five days that not only shook, but also shaped the world. The days between the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor on December the 7th, 1941, and Hitler's declaration of war in the United States on December the 11th. All students of both World War II and the Holocaust will learn, as I did, from their careful use of neglected documents and their attention to counterfactuals that for contemporaries were at least as likely as what actually happened. Uh, Charlie, Brendan, welcome uh, to this Hoover Book Talk. Uh, let me start the ball rolling by asking you, Charlie, the, the obvious question. Why did you decide uh, to write this book and, and why did you decide to write it now? Thank you so much for the introduction and um, thank you to Eric as well. It's, it's been a pleasure to be here at Hoover this past year. Um, Brendan and I, as you mentioned, Neil, have written books together, but we also have taught courses together. And that's really where this book emerged from. We taught a course on the geopolitics of the 20th century. And when we were teaching our students, we were discussing with them what it must have been like to be in the White House on the evening of December the 7th, 1941, what it must have been like for President Franklin Roosevelt. And so I just wanted to start with that thought experiment for all of you who are joining us and thank you for joining us today. I want you to put yourself back in that position as a fly on the wall 
in the White House on that evening because President Franklin Roosevelt had just received news of the shocking and devastating attack on Pearl Harbor, although the details of that destruction are as yet unclear. But for more than a year, Roosevelt had been trying to educate his fellow Americans about the threat posed by Nazi Germany. He'd established the United States as the arsenal of democracy, providing aid to Britain and latterly the Soviet Union in that struggle against Germany. And that's not to say that he had been blind to the threat from Japan, but he had invinced comparatively less concern about Japan. The focus was very much on Germany as the greater strategic threat. But now, on December the 7th, the US found itself at war, not with Germany, but with Japan. And Roosevelt was in a very, very difficult political situation. He couldn't preempt Hitler with a declaration of war, at least he didn't feel that he could, because of the huge political risks involved, that those in the country associated with the America First pressure group and others who had been long-standing non-interventionists would see him as trying to manipulate the situation to bring the US into the war in Europe as well. So he's in a very difficult political situation. The intelligence material that he is receiving suggests that Germany would join a war against um, that, that the US and Japan were involved in, but it's slightly conflicted. And also Hitler's behavior is not so easy to predict. Roosevelt's speechwriter, the playwright, Robert Sherwood, would say at this time, and he met with Roosevelt frequently during these days, that despite Hitler's pledge to the Japanese, it wasn't clear that such bourgeois instincts that um, Hitler would be willing just to act because he promised to do so. So the Americans couldn't be sure exactly how the Germans would react. And so if you were on the wall, if you were listening in on these conversations, Roosevelt is having meetings with Congress and cabinet about this, but the focus is very much on Japan. He's trying to bring the conversation back to the threat from Germany, but most of the questions that are coming at him are about Japan. And so in the White House, but also for American diplomats around the world, there is a, what the author of the containment doctrine, George Kennan, would describe, and he was at this time in the Berlin embassy, he would describe as excruciating uncertainty, not clear what was going to happen in the relations between the US and Germany. And it's that thought experiment, Neil, that brought us to this book. What must it have been like to experience these fraught and unpredictable days of what happened in between Pearl Harbor and ultimately Hitler's declaration of war in the US? So that's sort of the historical perspective, but we would say that it also has profound implications for us today to understand the history of this moment, what it's like to experience a crisis as a statesman and also ordinary people around the world where information is, is fragmented, you don't know everything that's going on, but also what we see here is a sense of contingency. There's no inevitability about one thing leading to the other, except in the mind of one man, um, Adolf Hitler. But a lot of the questions that we deal with today, and we can get onto those a bit later when we look at the sort of contemporary resonance of this, questions of logistics, supplies, defense aid to um, allies fighting against an authoritarian regime, dictators dominating countries that provide threats, but also in two different regions, both in East Asia and in Europe, 
and whether the United States will be sucked into foreign wars. These are big questions that were the case in December 1941, but are also relevant to us today. So that's sort of what came to us, how we got to this topic. Johnny, I seem to remember a threat to play a, a clip, uh, which uh, always makes me nervous because of its technical uh, downside risks. Is that something you want to do now, or do you want to save I'll, it? Until... I'll maybe do it for um, um, a bit later. Very good. Uh, in that case, I turn to Brendan now. Brendan, uh, you and I were once upon a time uh, colleagues at, at Cambridge, and uh, it was almost always German history that that we we talked about. And and clearly, what's exciting about your your collaboration with Charlie is that you you bring to the topic a great. Uh, knowledge of modern German history and and great insight into into Hitler's thinking. Now, we we clearly have to understand Hitler's view of the United States, and it was something that he had views on. And yet, I think most people still are inclined to to prioritize his uh, his concern with uh, perhaps fear of the Soviet Union because. That looms so much larger in in Hitler's thinking from Mein Kampf onwards. So help us think about, well, Hitler's worldview, which is something you've written about. Was his main preoccupation the threat of Bolshevism, or should we really give more attention to his view of the United States? Thank you. Hitler certainly uh, worried about uh, Bolshevism and the Soviet Union. Um, but we, we tend to see this as a dominant consideration, I think largely for teleological reasons, because we know the outcome, we know what happened between 1941 and 1945, and we, in a sense, extrapolate backwards. But it's our contention that that actually distorts uh, Hitler's worldview, because the way Hitler sees Bolshevism and the Soviet Union. It, it's more, Bolshevism is more of a disease. It's something that weakens Germany and indeed other countries in the face of the real threat, uh, which is Anglo-America and international capitalism. Um, he sees the Anglo-Americans basically as rulers of the world. He sees them as the key military powers. They're of course the victors uh, in World War I. Uh, Hitler spent most of the time fighting the British and then laterally uh, the Americans, it has a big impact on his thinking. Uh, they're both uh, great economic powers and Hitler in the 1920s when he's writing Mein Kampf, yes, he's talking about Bolshevism because it's undermining Germany from within, but his real concern, as you see in the second book and other many other statements is this immense power of the United States, which he is aware of uh, and he's, he's terrified uh, about. He also believes that the Anglo-Americans have space, the key criteria, um, which the Germans lack. So they are broadly speaking what he later calls the have, haves, and Germany is one of the have-not powers. He also sees Anglo-America as a racial model, uh, not least because it can draw on what he regards as high-value German immigrants. Uh, so he has a huge admiration for what he calls the, the Anglo-Saxon powers. Now, strangely, perhaps, he sees the Anglo-Saxons as being in league with the Jews to strangle the German Reich in the interests of Anglo-American imperialism and international capitalism. That's really his interpretation of what happened in the First World War. 
and he sees that as the main threat uh, from the 20s through uh, really to the end in 1945. So to conclude, I mean, his entire uh, ideology and policy from the early 1920s was really geared primarily towards this threat. Bolshevism in the Soviet Union is important, but it is ultimately secondary. And his declaration of war on the United States on the 11th of December, 1941, which you mentioned, um, and which of course uh, is the focus of our final book chapter, that was in many ways the culmination of his whole career. And I wanna ask you a follow-up question which uh, has to do with American attitudes towards European war in the 1930s. Uh, we, we tend to think of isolationism as the dominant strain of sentiment. Uh, Americans didn't look back on their intervention in World War I with tremendous fondness. And uh, the United States was neutral in the opening phase uh, of World War II. Uh, T tell me why Hitler didn't regard that as a highly desirable state of affairs to be continued, if at all possible. Essentially, because Hitler didn't really believe that the United States was neutral. Um, and in fact, in many practical respects, uh, it had long since ceased being neutral before December 1941. Now, please don't misunderstand us. Both Charlie and myself are delighted that the United States was not neutral. Um, but factually, this was the case. So from Hitler's point of view, if we track back uh, just a little bit, um, really the, the watershed moment is, is the famous quarantine speech by uh, President Roosevelt in October 1937, which targets the German Reich, in fact, along with the Japanese Empire and uh, Mussolini's Italy. But this is taken very badly. By Hitler. By Hitler. Uh, he thinks, and he's quite right, that Roosevelt is basically setting him up as an enemy for very good reason, of course. Um, and this is then followed by pretty rebarbative speech duels uh, in January 1939 and April 1939, where the two men uh, exchange compliments and Hitler very much targets Roosevelt and the United States as, as an existential threat uh, to the German right. Then from the start of World War II, of course, you had cash and carry, you had the supply of weapons against uh, payment uh, to the Western allies, not of course to the German Reich. Uh, and then uh, from 1941, uh, you have the coming into force of the Lend-Lease arrangements, which Charlie will talk about more in, in a minute, I'm sure. Um, but that of course is a huge transfer of equipment, really important uh, first for the British Empire and then later of course, for the Soviet Union uh, as well. Uh, you have United States destroyers attacking German submarines on the high seas in the Atlantic long before December 1941. And really rhetorically, all of this culminates from Hitler's point of view, well before US belligerency, in particular in August 1941, with the Atlantic Charter concluded between uh, Churchill uh, and um, Roosevelt. Uh, which of course looks forward to a war after the defeat of Nazism. And this at a time uh, when uh, the United States, as we stress again, was not yet a belligerent. So from Hitler's point of view, as we go into autumn and winter of 1941, he actually feels that he's basically already at war uh, and that a full-scale confrontation is really only a matter of time. 
Brendan, before I, I ask my next question, I want to bring in a question from uh, our audience. Stephen Marden asks what seems to me a relevant question at this point. How aware was Hitler of Japan's intention to attack uh, the United States? He was aware of its intention, but he was not aware of the exact moment. Um, and we know that uh, because of his utter surprise and indeed delight when he gets news uh, of the attack. Uh, the dramatic scene which we describe uh, near the start of the book, uh, where the news is brought to him, uh, and then he immediately uh, thinks that this is now what will give him relief, because uh, what he really wants is for the United States to tie, uh, sorry, for the Japanese to tie down the United States and to a lesser extent, the British Empire and the Far East, so that he can exploit a very narrow window of opportunity to wrestle down the Russians, or at least to fight them to a standstill, create a consolidated economic area uh, where he can survive the Anglo-American blockade and then outlast, not defeat, but outlast uh, both the British Empire and the United States. Um, so he wasn't, uh, he didn't know the exact moment, but he was aware of the general, uh, of the intent and encouraged it, and in particular encouraged them to attack the British and the Americans and not the Soviet Union, which I think is further evidence for the fact that really they were his main target, the Anglo-Saxons and not the Bolsheviks. Let me turn now to, to Charlie for the next question. And it, it's one of the things I love about the book is that everybody has agency and, uh, and, and you're taking us inside the minds of, of the decision makers. Now, Roosevelt's motivations and thinking uh, in 1941 are pretty controversial subject matter. There's long been a revisionist argument that it's actually uh, Roosevelt who's the belligerent one, who's pushing Japan into an impossible uh, situation, into a, into a corner, partly in order uh, to precipitate American entry into World War II. Uh, Charlie, what's really going on in Roosevelt's mind? Uh, and, and should we believe some of those more conspiratorial arguments that he kind of knew Pearl Harbor was going to come and quietly wanted it to come? Yes, but Roosevelt's mind has always been a, a very complex one for historians to, uh, to try and navigate because he doesn't share much of what's in his mind, either on paper or even with his closest confidants. And most of his aides talk about this afterwards, that he likes the idea to, to emerge, that he knew exactly what he was doing, but he's not necessarily willing to sort of share how he saw these things happening. And I think in relation to Japan, there certainly is a ratcheting up of pressure on them. But I think what's important to consider in relation to the revisionist argument is that the sense that a war with Japan will lead to a war with Germany, I think is, is, is erroneous. And Roosevelt does not necessarily see the two as, as, as being sort of inevitably and inexorably linked. So one of the things that I think is important to say is the, is the degree and the capacity of the American Navy at this time. Roosevelt, who'd been assistant secretary of the Navy during the First World War, has a very close um, affiliation and a close love for the, for, the, for the Navy. The idea that he'd be willing to allow it to be destroyed, I think, on an emotional level is very difficult, but also from a practical level. I mean, as soon as he hears of what happens at Pearl Harbor, he says to Eleanor Roosevelt just a few hours afterwards, 
Um, I don't know how we would be able to, to enter into a European war now. We don't have enough Navy to go round to fight a war in the Atlantic and the Pacific. So practically, I think that would be very difficult. I think the second question comes back to intelligence. And as Brendan said, just as Hitler doesn't know where or when the Japanese will act, the Americans aren't aware of this either. The intelligence is not the intelligence that we will see it later in the 20th and early 21st century. What we see here is sort of raw digests being handed to President Roosevelt. It's not entirely clear what the Japanese are going to do, where they're going to act. And so that is, um, is, is very unclear. And then another aspect of this is whether the Germans will join any war that the Japanese and the Americans will fight. We have to remember the tripartite pact between Japan, Germany and Italy commits them to go to war if one of them is attacked, not if they are the aggressor. And the intelligence that Roosevelt is receiving on this is very conflicted. Some um, intelligence is suggesting that the Germans will join a war. Others are really trying to emphasize that the Germans have no interest in a conflict with the United States. So it's very conflicted. And then the last aspect of this is how the American public would respond if the United States ends up in a war with Japan. We have to remember at this time, as late as November 1941, public opinion, according to most of the polls that come out in this period, only about 20 to 25% of Americans want to enter into a war with Germany. So it's not clear, as I mentioned at the beginning, that Roosevelt will be able to exploit a crisis in the Pacific to bring the United States into the war with, um, with Japan, uh, sorry, with Germany as well. And the British are also unclear whether Roosevelt even wants to. And one of Roosevelt's, sorry, one of Churchill's advisors at this time talks about the fact that American ships are being sunk in the Atlantic and Roosevelt has done nothing to bring the US closer to an entrance into the war. The expression is used that Roosevelt is behaving like Hamlet, hesitating, unwilling to make a decision on this. Um, so that, that I think that's sort of why the revisionist view, I think, doesn't quite stack up when we, when we try to analyse it in terms of the detail. I want to bring in another question from the audience and, and in doing so encourage others to post questions using that Q&A function on Zoom. Uh, uh, James Ronan asks, what were the debates among FDR staff in the five days in question? Were there any dissenting voices? Uh, Charlie? That's a very good question. So Henry Stimson, as the Secretary of War, is adamant almost straight away that, that the US can't allow this moment to slip and that Roosevelt, when he goes before Congress on December the 8th, should also include Germany in the declaration of war. But Roosevelt is very clear that that's not what he's going to do. He's going to present it as he does in a fireside chat on December the 9th. But he realizes that politically, he's in a very, very difficult position. The America First Committee, when they, and, and a lot of this is in the material that we have here at the Hoover Institution, it's very clear on the night of December the 7th and December the 8th, the statements they put out support the war with Germany, sorry, support the war with Japan, but are very clear that this does not necessarily change the situation with regard to Germany. And so that's what the statements say during that period. Most of the interviews given by non-interventionist senators are of the sense that Roosevelt should not exploit this situation to bring the US into war with Germany as well. And also that there's, there's criticism, at least in private, of the president for having provided so much supplies from Lynn lease 
to the British and the Soviets that it now looks like the Americans are deficient in the Pacific. So this is a very, very difficult political situation. And actually, I think this might be a good time to play the clip, if that's okay, sure. of the debate, because the debate is going on within Roosevelt's staff, but it's also going on outside in the public as well. So this is a clip from December the 9th, 1941. Um, it's from Library of Congress's Man on the Street interviews, which occur during this period. And it gives a sense of public opinion on the question of war with Germany. Mr. Fox, getting back to what you said just a moment ago, uh, you said that you believed uh, in helping Great Britain and the other democracies win this war uh, by every means short of war. In other words, you do not feel that the United States is at war with Germany at the present time to the same extent to which she is with Japan. I would say morally, yes, but looking at the problem realistically and practically, I believe that as a military standpoint, it is far better to fight on one front than on two. By concentrating our efforts on Japan, I am of the opinion that we can knock her out of the war much more rapidly than we can if our efforts are split by an AEF, for example, in Africa, and an Atlantic fleet which must see action in the Atlantic. Uh, don't Rep. forget, that's just exactly what Hitler wants us to do. If we concentrate entirely upon Japan, then we must stop our flow of goods to Great Britain and Russia. And evidently, the grand strategy back of the Axis powers is to uh, divert our flow of materials. So, so that, that just gives you a sense that this debate is going on. And Roosevelt's trying to influence it in more surreptitious ways. Materials being put out both to Congress and to the public, that German planes have been involved in the attack on Pearl Harbor, that the Germans essentially, um, they're either the wire pullers bringing the Japanese into the war, but also that they've been actively involved and Roosevelt says this on the night of December the 7th to a congressional delegation. He says, we don't have confirmation that there were German planes over Pearl Harbor. We're going to believe it until something else comes in. It's, a, it's astonishing statements that are coming out on this. And so this is, this is fundamentally important. So there's that on one side, but on the other side, suspicion of this. The New York Times on December the 8th is saying, well, why would Hitler want us to get involved um, well, why would he want us to get involved in a war with him? It's much more likely that this was an independent Japanese action. This isn't necessarily a conjoined attack. So, so much confusion, so much uncertainty. And I think that that comes out in the public and in the political debate. And, and Marcel Bernie has a question which seems appropriate to, to turn to now about the sources. The book is based on, you've just shown that, that you're your range of sources is beyond the, the traditional diplomatic uh, documents. And, and that wonderful audio clip is a reminder that there the really are a tremendous uh, uh, quantity of sources that you can draw. And maybe say a brief word about that, that just to give listeners a sense of, of, of how you and Brendan pieced together this story uh, from, from various sources. Yes, thank you very much so. And we, we, we initially thought this was going to be a rel relatively short book. We didn't know how many sources we were going to find for a, for a short period of time, but it quickly became clear just how much material there was, because this is very much a global history, global in the sense of the actors involved. The idea is that we, we want to look at the perspective from all of the major actors, from the United States, Germany and Japan, but also from Britain, what the experience was like in 10 Downing Street, in the Kremlin, from, um, from France as well, from Vichy France, because this has a global impact 
on so many different actors, the perspective in China as well. So the idea is, is to be as global as possible because Hitler's decision is ultimately what brings about what previously had been a, a sort of a loosely connected two conflicts into this conjoined global war. So global on that level, but also as broad as possible to understand the true grand strategy because all of these actors are having in different ways to deal with domestic public opinion. So what we wanted to do was not just deal with the chancelleries and the war rooms, or even just the legislatures, we wanted the man on the street, we wanted diaries, newspapers. So from all of the major actors, we, um, we, we try to sort of delve into sort of the public debates, how people experienced it, what they were listening to on the radio, what conversations they were having with their neighbours, just to give you a sense of just how uncertain and how um, difficult it was to sort of try and decipher exactly what was going on during these days. I want to talk about uh, Britain and the Soviet Union, uh, because as you rightly say, Charlie, part of the beauty of the book is you you get a sense of, of the grand strategy of all the major uh, combatants. Churchill later on made it sound as if Pearl Harbor was a terrific relief and uh, that he slept the sleep of the saved in the wake of uh, that event. You say uh, not so fast, Winston. That wasn't quite how it felt at the time. Tell us more about that. Well, what, as you say, Winston Churchill's writing is so wonderfully evocative and so powerful that it has tended to sort of shape the historical perspective on this. Churchill's line of sleeping the saved and thankful, the sense that the US was in the war, as he says, up to the neck and into the death, so we had won after all. But if you actually look at the experience of the time, Churchill doesn't feel this great relief. He certainly hasn't slept the sleep of the saved and thankful. Anyone who sees him across these days describes him as looking completely exhausted. Anyone who heard him on the radio says that he sounds, he sounds shattered. But it's not just in terms of the sleep. It's also his actions during those days as well. He's determined to rush to Washington, D.C. as soon as the attack happens because his concern is that the US is gonna focus completely on Japan and on the Pacific and leave the British alone other than, other than with the Soviet Union to fight against the Nazis. So he's, there is an element of relief because his great fear was that Britain would fight against Japan and Germany on two fronts without the United States. At least the Americans are in the war in the Pacific, but they're not in Europe. And the big question, as Brendan had mentioned earlier, is Lend-Lease. And I think this hasn't really come out to the extent that we tried to show in the book before, because on the night of December the 7th, an embargo is placed on Lend-Lease aid to the Allies. And as a result, material that's already loaded onto ships that was crossing the Atlantic and going to the Soviets um, through the Vladivostok route is ultimately just taken off those ships and it's gonna be sent to the Pacific. And the British and the Soviets have become totally reliant on Lend-Lease aid. So the problem that they are going to face in, the Soviet, in, in North Africa and in the Battle of Moscow is extremely profound. I mean, Churchill and his supply minister, Lord Beaverbrook, are being awoken in the early hours of the morning with aides saying they're taking the material off of the ships. They won't let them be unloaded at the docks. And there's a huge panic, not just on these questions, but also, and I think this is, again, a pressing question for us today, is vital in terms of commodities, chemicals, the sort of raw minerals that are dependent, that you require to fight these major conflicts. 
Britain has become reliant on the United States for that as well. And it's not clear that that material is going to come. And some of these materials are things which, if Britain doesn't get this, then they're not going to be able to build their own planes and tanks, let alone receiving them from the United States. So Churchill is panicked and in these days um, desperate to get to the United States. And Roosevelt initially is not very keen to have him because the sense is this will look politically extremely dicey. If Churchill turns up in Washington, while it's still unclear whether the United States will enter the war with Germany, again, this will look like Roosevelt's exploiting the situation to bring the US into the war with Germany. Um, there's quite a large um, upsurge in anti-British sentiment that had occurred throughout 1941. So to understand domestic public opinion in the United States, and Churchill does understand it, but he realizes that actually the situation is extremely precarious. So certainly not someone who has this triumphal relief that he later writes about. Another thing that you, you show is the kind of internal debates going on in, in London. Uh, uh, my favorite character is, in a sense, uh, the anti-Churchill, Alan Brooke, uh, who's uh, chief of the Imperial General Staff. And you, you have a little vignette where you show uh, what Britain's options were at this point. The Prime Minister Churchill, you say, wanted to actually send the 18th Division to Malaya uh, just after they'd arrived in, in Cape Town. Alan Brooke was alarmed at this idea, I'm quoting here, regarding it as evidence of Churchill's lack of strategic forethought and propensity to work by intuition and impulse in Alan Brooke's words. So in each of the capitals, there are really extraordinary debates going on about what to do next. And you really, I think, restore uh, what's so often lost in the telling of the history of World War II, a sense of the sheer openness uh, of the decision-making process. And, and that brings us to a very different decision-making environment, the one that was going on in Moscow. Uh, Brendan, uh, let's turn to the Eastern Front. I know we've got an eminent historian of Eastern Europe on this call, because Norman Neymark has posted a question. We'll come to that in a minute. Before we get to that, can we talk a bit about the situation on the Eastern Front and, uh, and, and what exactly uh, is Stalin thinking? Uh, he's got, of course, uh, the Wehrmacht perilously close uh, at this time. Uh, and then he's getting information about uh, the Japanese move. Help us reconstruct the, the thinking in his mind and the options that the Soviets had? Well, Stalin is, is both relieved and perturbed. He's relieved in the sense that the intelligence that he got uh, uh, somewhat earlier uh, in the year, uh, in the summer and autumn from his master spy, Richard Sorge in, in Tokyo, that the Japanese were not going to attack him in the Far East, uh, not least because they got a bloody nose in, 1938 and 1939 when they had tried that. Um, so that it was welcome news that uh, the Japanese had attacked uh, the Anglo-Americans and not him. On the other hand, um, there was anxiety. And the anxiety is to do with what Charlie's already referred to, which is the possible diversion of Lend-Lease supplies. Because at the time we're talking about, not only was it planned to send supplies via Vladivostok, 
later uh, it would come through the uh, route that had just been opened uh, through Iran. Uh, but there are already supplies coming uh, on the Arctic convoy route. In fact, one of those convoys, PQ-6, uh, we describe in some detail as it wends its way uh, with a precious cargo of aircraft and tanks uh, from Iceland, where it assembles uh, to uh, the Soviet Arctic ports. Um, and we know uh, very well that Stalin was concerned about this because his ambassador to um, the United States, uh, the new one, Maxim Litvinov, arrives that very day uh, in the US um, and meets with uh, US leaders, including Roosevelt. And one of the first questions he asks is, you know, are we going to continue getting our equipment now that you're fighting the Japanese? And he gets a somewhat unreassuring answer, which is on the lines of, we'll continue sending you tanks, but maybe not aircraft, uh, which is surely not uh, what he wanted uh, to hear. And of course, this matters uh, intensely because as Charlie said, um, Lend-Lease material uh, and indeed British material uh, is, been, is vital. Um, aircraft being used in the defense of Leningrad, as we show, uh, British tanks being used uh, in defense uh, of uh, Moscow. And indeed, so anxious uh, were the Soviets about this that uh, they actually had a, a series of, of uh, frequently asked questions for their propaganda companies uh, to, to respond to queries from the troops. And one of them was, um, now that uh, the United States has been attacked by uh, the Japanese, won't we get less equipment from them? So it was, it was, there was deep anxiety, in other words, uh, uh, in, uh, in Moscow and throughout the Soviet Union, uh, really only evaporated once the United States was then also at war with the German Reich from the 11th of December, uh, five days later. And, and that brings us to Hitler's decision, and it's a chance for me to bring in Norman Neymark, uh, who asks, I'm curious how one comes to a firm conclusion that Hitler's warlike goals were more focused on the US than on the Soviet Union. Clearly, there's evidence on both sides of, these, of the question, but what are the conclusive factors? Brendan, in, in many ways, the most important uh, decision of all in your book is, is Hitler's. Uh, and uh, a number of other uh, members of the audience have asked about that. Uh, uh, for example, David Walker asks, do you think in the end Roosevelt could have persuaded Congress to declare war on Nazi Germany without a German declaration of war on the United States? So we are, I think, here at the crux of the matter. Why does Hitler do it? Uh, it's easy for historians who haven't delved as deeply as you to say, well, this was his greatest blunder. What, a, what an act of madness. How do you think about this and how should we think about Hitler's decision? Well, thank you very much. And thank you also to Norman Neymark for his question. And of course, I'm very familiar with his books, which I've used on, on, on many occasions. I think the way in which we, we know that Hitler's main focus is Anglo-American, then of course, particularly the United States rather than the Soviet Union, is because uh, it's, it's really the focus of his, um, his uh, ideology and then his strategy in the sense that he always regards the British Empire and the United States as subjects, and the Soviet Union in the end as a space, as an object, which is to be controlled and to provide the German Reich with the resources to fight Anglo-America and the space to settle Germans, to raise a, a race, which 
he hopes, will be fit uh, to take on the Anglo-Saxons. So uh, we, that in strategic and ideological terms, that's how we know it. In military terms, we know it uh, because contrary to myth, um, most of the time, most of the German war effort was devoted to fighting the Anglo-Americans. We get focused on soldiers, on manpower, maybe on tanks. But of course, this is a war of machines. Stalin said it as much, and he was very clear that the United States was the main industrial power. And uh, when we look at uh, the proportion of the war economy devoted to fighting, on the one hand, the Soviet Union, and on the other hand, the Anglo-Americans, with a brief exception between, I don't know, say June 1941 and perhaps March 1942, the majority and ultimately the vast majority of uh, the war economy is devoted to fighting the Anglo-Americans. And all the statistics on that uh, you will find in Phillips O'Brien's excellent book on this, who's, who's, who's crunched the, the, the numbers. When we come to uh, why Hitler takes this decision, it is indeed a blunder, as it turns out. But our argument is that it is not uh, an insane move. It is a calculated risk. It is a decision taken by a man who believes that he is going to confront the United States in any case, and that he is in fact preempting an attack uh, from Roosevelt, who he believes, like President Wilson, the First World War, is just waiting for the right moment to attack when the US war economy is ready, probably uh, sometime in the middle of 1942. And so his only hope is to let loose the Japanese on the US and on the British first, and then to find, as I said earlier, that sort of narrow path by which he can hold off the Soviet Union and um, uh, create this sort of blockade uh, free space, uh, which will enable him to survive, not, not, not to prevail, uh, but to survive. What would have happened um, had Hitler not declared war on Roosevelt? Um, would it have been difficult for Roosevelt to declare war on Hitler? I'm sure Charlie will have something to say about this as well. It seems uh, to us very likely that, that he could not have done it without uh, uh, really damaging the internal American consensus. And even a delay of a few weeks or a few months would have quite substantially changed the course of the war because as the Japanese were advancing in the Far East and the situation got worse, it would have made it even more difficult for Roosevelt proactively to bring the United States into the war. Um, so so that, that would be our response on that. Thanks, Brennan. And Charlie, can I hand this, uh, this one to you? We're, we're now into the, the fascinating realm of, of counterfactuals, and I wanted to spend a bit of time on those because they're part of what I love about the book. Uh, what's your view? No Hitler declaration of war? No uh, US declaration of war on Germany? It's, I think the, what we would say is that this is not to say that there wasn't the possibility that would have existed after Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor that the US and Germany wouldn't at some point have gone to war, that there was the possibility there. But the idea that this was inevitable, I think we take issue with. And also, I think what's clear here is the importance to Roosevelt of maintaining American unity. And you see this from his experience during the First World War, his experience of having served under Woodrow Wilson and what happens to him over the League of Nations debate. Wilson 
is always hovering over Roosevelt. Quite literally, Roosevelt has a picture of Wilson in the White House that he constantly would look up at whenever he was writing state addresses and speeches. And the idea, and Robert Sherwood talks about this in his book, was that that was an ever-present lesson. Don't get too far ahead of the American public. And it's clear at this time, if you look through Roosevelt's papers, if you look through all of the material at the Roosevelt Library, the importance that's placed on unity, on bringing a united country into war, just how controversial it was for American troops to again fight on European soil. And if Roosevelt was going to do it, he needed a united country behind him. And the, the influence of America first comes from that, the sense to which he doesn't want to bring the United States into the war where there's going to be criticism of that decision. And we see across this period, even for many of those who say, and that has sort of become the myth, that isolationism collapses overnight on December the 7th, 1941, Arthur Vandenberg's famous line. If you look at what Vandenberg's writing in private at this time, there's certainly no indication that isolationism has collapsed overnight. He still believes that he was correct um, even after December the 11th. But at this time, the emphasis is very much on Japan and Germany is, not, is, is barely mentioned. Herbert Hoover, who um, um, is writing at this time on December the 8th, 1941 to Robert Taft, says that he thinks that Roosevelt's speech on the 8th is an excellent speech because he limits the declaration of war. He says that he knows that Roosevelt's advisors are pushing him to declare war, as Hoover says, on the whole world. But ultimately, that Roosevelt had resisted this, and Hoover is still hopeful that that can be um, prevented. The US will fight a more limited war. And so this is the sort of the fight that's going on in this period. Will the US fight sort of this broader war alongside allies, or will it fight a more limited, almost an America first war that would fight against the enemy that had attacked it? And that would be the focus of its perspective. And as Brendan said, the most important thing, even if the possibility exists that at some point the US and Germany would have ended up in conflict, timing is so critical within this. Timing is so critical for the British and for the Soviets, the war in North Africa and in Moscow. And if, as it is likely, and this has continued for weeks or potentially for months, if that had prolonged the supply crisis that occurs during these days, and the British and the Soviets hadn't got the American material that they needed, then the consequences for their war efforts would have been grave. And I think that's an important thing to bear in mind. It's very easy for us to look back and see things working out in the way in which they do, but to experience it at the time, timing, contingency, the ways in which these things might have turned out differently are critical, not just because they were a parlor game for us to play, but because that's how the actors experienced them. Those were the fears that they had at that time. Martha Salinger and Mark Schreiber and others have questions that relate more uh, uh, to the, the present, and I don't want to leave too little time to address those questions. But one uh, final historical question uh, has to be about Japan. Uh, Nate Moyer asks, how do you address the Japanese attacks on Singapore and Hong Kong on December the 8th, 1941? And maybe I could... Uh, rephrase the question a little and, and say, what were Japan's options? We've touched on the option of, of attacking the Soviet Union, uh, which would certainly have been the best option from Hitler's vantage point, but was really discarded after the bloody nose that the Japanese received uh, there. But what about the option of not attacking the United States, but just attacking 
the European empires in Asia. Do you, do you see those as, as realistic counterfactuals and what do they imply, either of you? Well, the Japanese did consider that, um, but the problem was that there was no uh, militarily feasible way of launching an attack south towards Hong Kong and, of course, the Dutch East Indies, which, which are where the uh, valuable oil resources were located, uh, without exposing your flank to an attack from the Philippines uh, and ultimately from Pearl Harbor. So the, the Japanese strategists basically uh, thought that was too risky. And, of course, and the United States had quite clearly signaled, um, though not guaranteed, that it would come in on the British side in such an event. Um, so uh, from the Japanese point of view, if they were going to attack the one power, uh, they would really need to attack the other. Uh, attacking the Soviet Union would not actually have appealed to Hitler. Um, Hitler wanted quite specifically uh, the Japanese to attack, um, uh, to, to attack the Anglo-Americans. What the Japanese were anxious about, and we, we talk quite a, quite a lot about in the, in the book, is that having attacked the Anglo-Americans, that Hitler might then do the dirty on them uh, and not come in as he had promised to do. And there's some pretty hairy moments where the Japanese elite are discussing this. And in, indeed, before the war, there are some voices uh, in Tokyo saying that really the Germans are going to leave us in the lurch. There will be a racial abandonment. The Germans will make a deal with the British and the Americans, and we will be left fighting the white races. So there's not a lot of trust on the Japanese side and quite a lot of anxiety in those intervening days uh, that perhaps they will be left to fight by the Americans on their own. Well, we've come to that point when we have to do some applied history. Take all the insights uh, that you've given us on World War II and try to use them to illuminate our own time. Martha Salinger, uh, or rather, I think it's Werner, who asks the question, uh, in Hitler's thinking and actions during this time, are there lessons for today uh, with respect to uh, President Putin and Ukraine? And Mark Schreiber asks, what lessons with regard to Russia today, do you believe, can be learned from your work? Uh, Brendan, why don't you go first on lessons for the present? Thank you. We, yeah, we've thought quite a bit about this. And, and the difficulty is, of course, uh, once you get beyond uh, you know, simplistic comparisons between Hitler and Putin, which I don't think we want to, to, to engage in. Um, the, the, the lessons really point in two directions, diametrically opposite. On the one hand, you have a story around sanctions and miscalculations about the danger of pushing people into a corner. And if you're minded to take that route, then you will look at uh, the story of miscalculation in Washington on, on Japanese reaction uh, towards the oil embargo, for instance, uh, might that uh, be replicated by Putin uh, reacting to sanctions against him, uh, for instance. Um, on the other hand, you see quite a clear parallel, both in terms of Putin's worldview, by which I don't mean to say, or we don't mean to say, that he replicates Hitler in every respect, but there is a parallel in the sense that both men uh, regard the Western world with suspicion. They see themselves as, as being pushed out and isolated by what both of them call Anglo-Saxon powers. That's quite a strong trope in Russian rhetoric, including Putin's. Um, and so that they are part of the have-nots and that they need to fight, uh, fight their corner 
and resist the West. Um, and indeed that they are in some important respect already at war with the West. So this is a theme we mentioned uh, leading into December 1941 that Hitler believed uh, that he was already fighting a proxy war against the United States. And we see in Ukraine today that uh, in Putin's mind uh, and in the rhetoric of the regime, we see them saying things like, we are already now in a proxy war with the West. I happen to believe that supporting Ukraine militarily is the right thing to do. But we, do, we, we need to be clear uh, about the kind of uh, resonances uh, and anxieties that that also triggers uh, in Moscow. So those would be some of the parallels um, I see. There are further ones to do with, with Lend-Lease, uh, which uh, has just been, of course, gone through the uh, US uh, Senate uh, yesterday. But I'll leave Charlie to talk about that. Yes, Charlie, uh, give us a sense of uh, the, uh, the the implications of the book for uh, the contemporary world as you see as you see them. Um, yes, well, I, I think Brendan has, has dealt with the with the Russian angle, um, I think, very effectively. But what I would say is that what's important here is that the US again faces um, revanchist powers, challengers in both Europe and in Asia. And the debate, as it occurred in 1941 and before that, as in today, is where does the US devote its resources? Should, it, should the focus be on um, the challenge coming from Europe or from Asia? Obviously, the actors are different. Their relative powers are different. But that's an important one to bear in mind as well. And I think I wanted to talk a little bit about the East Asian aspect of this, because there's always been this emphasis on the idea that power transitions come when you have a rising power that's looking to supplant the hegemon at the top, and there's quite a lot of literature on this in relation to China emerging as the world's number one power and the United States, the challenge that that provides. But I think what's important about the book and about the history of this is what happens when a rising power basically reaches its limit and the possibility that, as Germany found in 1941, as Japan did, that they're not going to rise peacefully or they're not going to be able to rise without um, enraging and arousing the hostility of the number one hegemon in the system. And then there's a sense to which, how do you respond? And again, this comes back to questions of timing, that the Japanese and the Germans both saw these narrow windows of opportunity, where if they allowed the situation to continue, then the situation would become worse. And ultimately, they needed to act because of that. And there were some signs, and Hal Brand at Johns Hopkins has, has, has written quite a bit about this, the ways in which the Chinese are perceiving things in a very similar way today, that the situation is going to become worse. And, and the argument could be made from the Russian perspective that this was the time to strike, because if they didn't, then in the years to come, the geopolitical situation for them would be worse. And it comes back to questions of resources as well. Whereas for the Japanese in 1941, it was oil. For the Chinese today, it could be semiconductors. It could be the question in Taiwan. And so these are important questions, these windows of opportunity that powers see in order to establish their place in the sun. That's an important question. And again, it comes back to timing as well on both sides, that crises are fundamentally important. And that's why I think applied history is so relevant, is because when we look back, timing might seem um, inevitable. But at the time uh, uh, that we're looking at here, there are moments where nations might act and might strike. And we need to understand things 
in their context at the time. And I think that's that's the sort of crises that we saw then and the crises we might see today. Well, timing is indeed everything uh, in history as in uh, Zoom calls. Uh, we are now uh, coming to the end of uh, this session, uh, which I've certainly enjoyed uh, enormously. Uh, it only really uh, remains uh, for me uh, to thank you both to thank Brendan Sims and Charlie Lederman for this uh, terrific presentation uh, and discussion. The book, once again, is Hitler's American Gamble, uh, available in all uh, good bookstores. I want to thank everybody who's joined. Uh, we've had a terrific turnout for this event, and uh, it's great to see some Hoover colleagues uh, on as well. Uh, we very much uh, hope you enjoyed the discussion. Uh, with that, I will, uh, I will leave you and thank uh, our speakers once again for a terrific show. Thanks, everybody.